When they started to prepare for COVID-19 patients at Rogue Regional Medical Center in Southern Oregon, Dr. Somnath Ghosh was part of the team. He's the medical director for the intensive care unit, a pulmonary specialist, and very dedicated to his job. Works long hours, the kind of doctor who gives out his cell phone number to staff and patients and families and tells them to use it anytime. And his wife, Renu, who's also a doctor, says he really threw himself into this task. He spent a lot of his even off time at the hospital trying to gear up for, you know, the big wave to hit us. Right. And he he's a little bit of a geek, so got super excited. You know, he's like, oh, we today figured out how to use one ventilator on eight patients instead of, you know, I think four or six is considered the max standard. So he mm-hmm. spends calculating, okay, you know, we'll be able to vent 360 patients, preparing for all of this. But so far, they've been lucky. The pandemic has mostly spared the half million people as hospital serves in Southern Oregon. But I spoke with her husband, Dr. Ghosh, one afternoon last week. He said in total, they've only had three COVID patients that needed intensive care. Dr. Ghosh prepared for a war that he's not having to fight. But all the time, he gets invitations to go join the fight. In New York, Louisiana, and other hotspots, begging him to fly out and help. Every single day. In fact, I get at least four or five of these a day. And I've been getting them for the last few weeks. These are, I can read you a few. Sure. Uh, hi, Dr. Ghosh. It's Elizabeth with Core Medical. I hope you're doing well. We have a client in New York who needs critical care support due to a high volume of patients. I hope to connect with you soon. Thank you for all you do. Another one says, immediate ICU coverage needed. Should you be able to assist, please give me a call or send a CV to yada, 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 weekend license. Another one says, good morning, a facility in Houston area is needing some help in their ICU. Can you help them during this crisis? Uh, I also have received texts from friends uh, personally. They're in such a need for critical uh, care physicians. Do you wish you can go? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. I mean, this, I, I mean, I, it's, uh, this is what I trained for. This is what I do. You know, this is like, uh, you know, six years of specialty training and then, uh, you know, nine years of experience. It's, I feel useless sitting here in Southern Oregon while, you know, the Northeast is getting pummeled. Yeah, like there's a historic medical emergency that could use your exact special skills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I feel guilty even going home and, uh, you know, playing with my kids and watching TV. And, you know, I, I know my, my friends and my, my brethren on the East Coast are uh, risking their lives. Suboptimal PPE, uh, you know, not enough specialists to help them. So he comes back from work one day. I'm in the midst of getting dinner going for our two children. And he's like, what do you think about me going to New York? You know, I'm sitting here, nothing is happening. And there they are just dying. And I think my first flash action was just anger. I'm like, how can you be so selfish? You only always think as a physician and, you know, me or the kids or like family just, you know, you don't even think about it. And trying to go to New York you know, especially kind of looking for trouble. I'm like, you know, there are other doctors, but I only have one husband. My kids have only one dad and you're the only son to your mom who's a widow now and kind of depends on you for everything. But then I think 10 minutes later, I kind of was telling myself that, you know, I'm not surprised by this. He's at his best when he's the physician. He works harder than anything he'll work at at home. He's more patient with his staff and patients than he is with my children. 
this just how he connects i think there's some part of him which just gets very satisfied when he is able to help someone but he's not going to go to new york and not because of her not because of their kids who are still little not because he's worried he'll get covid he's young and healthy and has a doctor's overconfidence assuming he's going to be fine he's not going to save lives like he wants because he can't go and he can't go because of his immigration status He's in the United States on something called an H-1B visa. And uh, the rules prohibit me from working for anyone else other than my employer. So he has to stay in Oregon. He can't go to work for a hospital in Brooklyn or New Orleans. He can't even volunteer. We're in a health emergency in the United States, and over a fourth of the physicians here are foreign-born. Over 8,000 of those have the kind of visa that Somnath has, an H-1B visa which is given to people who have special education or skills who want to work in the United States. In Somnath's case, he was born in India, came here for his medical residency, got his H-1B visa when he got his first job out of training at the hospital where he still works nine years later. If he had a green card, it would fix the problem. And he's waiting for one. But the backlog on green cards is massive. That'll take decades. He believes the government should grant exceptions to the rules right now and let healthcare workers with H-1B visas fly to the hotspots and help out during this crisis. And dozens of senators and congresspeople, mostly Democrats, but a few Republicans sprinkled in, have tried to get the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service to do just that, though that hasn't gotten much traction. So Dr. Ghosh is stuck in southern Oregon during this crisis, far from the action. What if you just went? Couldn't you just go? Well, if I do that, then I violate the terms of my H-1B and it becomes null and void. Oh, I see. Then you would be here illegally all of a sudden. Well, yeah, then I'll be out of status, which means I'll be unemployed. And uh, yeah, that thought did cross my mind, trust me. But the cost is just too high. Yeah, no, you know, if I was just by myself, you know, sure, if uh, I'd do what I thought was right, and, and then I could just up and leave, you know, go back to India or elsewhere. Uh, with a wife and a three-year-old and a six-year-old, yeah, I, um, I can't risk that. Yeah. How does it make you feel that you can't help? You know, f- frustrated. Um, small. You know, I mean, you you think that common sense would prevail and they do what's right for the for the population, especially in such trying times. You know, you want to yell and shout and scream and say, what what exactly are you guys thinking of, you know? Dr. Ghosh says before this, he felt happy in Southern Oregon. He's one of the leaders in his hospital, felt like he belonged. But since COVID, for the first time, he started to think he might leave the United States. You know, I've been thinking about this more and more because, you know, my kids are only three and six. They can easily adapt to a new way of life. Mm-hmm. I'll be honest, this the community in Southern Oregon has embraced me, and this is home for me. I, I was happy just doing my job, raising my family. And then when this thing hit, and then I, I realized how helpless I am and how inconsequential, it, it boggles my mind that uh, uh, that they don't think that this is a priority. You know, I, I'll be, you know, if this happens again this winter with an outbreak and, and this repeats itself, I'm out of here. I'm done. What do you mean? Oh, like if this winter season, 
there's another surge and then we're hit with the flu and the coronavirus and uh, personnel and uh, 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 you know, equipment shortage and they need help. Uh, I'm not going to sit around just uh, going through this rigmarole all over again. I'm going to pack my bags and leave, maybe make a stop on in New York or something for a few weeks before I leave. So, so the plan would be to leave, take the whole family back to India, and yeah. maybe on the way you'd work for a few weeks or months in a New York hospital, since at that point it wouldn't matter. Might as well, right? I mean, if I'm going to get out of here, might as well, you know, do some good along the way. When I asked his wife, Reno, about that plan, she was like, well, we'll decide about that together. For now, anyway, so I'm not this stuck. Getting texts like this one that he got recently from a friend, a guy who we went to medical school with who's now in New Jersey, deluged with COVID cases. So here he says, uh, hey, dude, haven't heard back from you in a few days. What happened to your plans of coming here? We could certainly use you, getting our asses kicked here. Besides, haven't seen you forever. So I reply, uh, so apparently cannot help due to H-1B visa. So he replies, are you effing kidding me? We are using residents from unrelated specialties in our ICU. You're just going to sit there? So I reply, what do you what do you want me to do? And he's like, this is bull bro. I got to go. Talk to you later. We're in our program. Stuck. There's so many of us stuck at home. We're stuck without a job. We're stuck on hold for everything next that was going to happen in our lives. Waiting for a future to arrive that now seems unreadable and impenetrable. We have stories of people stuck in some unusual and extreme situations with, I swear we are human beings here at our show, we need this too, with some happy endings on some stories. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Nakwan, you can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. So our show today is about people who are stuck. And years ago, one of our co-workers, Alma Baker, found herself trapped in a hotel room with her siblings, held there by a stranger. What happened was, their family was all staying at this Marriott. But they're such a big family. Four of the kids were in one room, with the oldest kid and the parents next door. Alma was 14 years old at the time, in the room with 10-year-old Julia, 8-year-old Britton, and 5-year-old Jill, who Alma was sharing a bed with. Alma the 14-year-old, the 8th grader, was more or less in charge. And then one night, they're all asleep. It's the middle of the night. My memory is that it's like I, I saw like a sliver of light, which is what woke me up, and the sound of the door closing. And there was the feeling that there was someone standing at the foot of the bed. Mm-hmm. So I reached over and I turned the lamp on, and there was this woman. Wow. A- and uh, she looked startled to see us. And the first thing she said was, you're just children. I didn't expect you to be children. So that's pretty creepy. Right. What did you make of her saying that? I instantly felt like this is an unsafe situation. Yeah. Describe her. I remember she was my mom's age. So she was probably in her 40s. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, brown hair, white, kind of like frumpy looking. Like somebody you'd sit next to on the bus or something. Did she seem menacing? She seemed 
really distressed. She was crying, too. She was crying? She was crying, yeah. She cried the whole time she was there. She's crying, and she said, your children, I didn't expect you to be children. Yeah. And do the other kids get up? Everyone's wide awake. Like, I I distinctly remember my little brothers and sisters' faces because their eyes were just huge. But no one said anything. And are they sitting up, too, or are they just, like, laying flat still? They're still laying flat. Like, nobody moved. So what happens next? She's talking, right? This isn't how it was supposed to be. And and, and she's also crying, and she's she's talking to herself. I remember being very hard to follow what what she was saying. Yeah. And uh, eventually I said, um, I'm sorry, I think you have the wrong room. And she started to cry and she said, I know, I know. And I do this, I do this. I don't know why I do this. And then she's um, pacing back and forth uh, and, and kind of crying. And she sits down on the bed, at the foot of the bed. Did she seem crazy or did she seem upset? I mean, it's interesting. I was, I think I'd, I was too young and unfamiliar to identify what a crazy person seems like. Yeah. But what I could identify in that moment was that this person was unpredictable. So you guys like, oh, I've got to be really careful how I do this. I, I remember feeling that pressure. And in that moment, we're very, very, very aware of my brothers and sisters. Because they were so little. And yeah. that something bad could happen to them. And that the way that it wasn't going to happen to them was me. There were no adults there. I think it was the first situation I was ever in where there was, you couldn't defer to someone else to to keep you safe or tell you what to do. And what do I do? And it had that quality of like, like time slows down and you're kind of, you're there, but you're also watching. So then I did the math in my head, and I was like, okay, I have a couple options. They are uh, cry for help, scream, but I don't think anyone will hear. Mm -hmm. Um, I I remember looking at how far away the phone was from me, Mm -hmm. and I realized I can reach and grab the phone, and I could call for help. Or um, even, like, like, if I could knock on the door where my sister was, Sister in the connecting room next door. I could at least, they would know something was happening in here, and they could get to us in time. Yeah. But all of that felt like um, like an escalation. Like I would provoke her. And so what can I do to not provoke her? And kind of play up the fact that we're children. And um, what I felt I needed to do was I needed to calm her down and become her friend. And if I could become her friend, she would leave and she wouldn't hurt us. Like get her to see you as a person. Just like make her think I was on her side. Because it didn't feel like she didn't see us as people. It just felt like, um, it felt dangerous and I didn't understand why. And I felt like 
the key to being safe was slowing everything down. And I remember her saying, like, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm here. I'm sorry I'm doing this. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember this, but my brother remembers that what she said was, I'm sorry, girls. I'm sorry, girls. And that his whole memory of this night was just being like, I'm a boy. She's <laughs> 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 so mad. Um, so I asked her, I said, um, are you okay? Is everything Okay. And that's, she kept, you know, going on about how her n- night was so hard. And I was like, I'm so sorry. That sounds really, really difficult. Um, and this is you trying to befriend her. Yeah, this is me trying to befriend her. But it's weird. I feel like I was hyper alert to like, if I can understand what's going on with her, I can help solve it. But I couldn't understand because it didn't make any sense. Did you feel sorry for her? I felt concerned for her. Yeah. And, um, and then... She took out her purse, and uh, she reached into her purse, and then she gripped onto something. And I remember thinking, like, oh, no. Like, what? The way, like, I thought. Oh, like it's like a gun or something. Or a gun or a knife or something. I remember my heart just dropping. And then she pulled out a hairbrush, and then she just started brushing her hair, like, at the foot of my bed. Wow. And, uh, And at that point, I was like, this is really weird. <laughs> this is like, right. uh, and I don't think she's going to leave. And then um, she sat on the vanity in front of the mirror at the desk, and she took her earrings off. And uh, oh wow! And she started like take. She took her shoes off. She, like, took her coat off. She was just, like, oh, like wow. making herself comfortable to, like, be here now. Right. And so I let her do all that um, and was sort of listening to her go on about what was wrong. And then eventually, after I felt like enough time had passed, I said, um, we, um, we have to wake up early to go to school tomorrow. And we're really tired, so I think we we should probably go back to bed now. And she was like, I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm here, I'm here, I'm sorry, I'm here. And I said, um, no, it's, it's like, totally fine that you're here. Almost like, you know, thank you for being here, mm-hmm. but um, do you mind uh, leaving now? And so I, like, very slowly stood up and walked over to the door and, like, Every moment was, like, making sure I was safe. And then I opened the door, and she said, okay, okay. And she put her shoes on, and then she started to leave. And just as she was about to leave, I said, oh, you forgot your earrings. And then she was, like, started crying all over again like it was this huge thing. Walked over to get the earrings and then sat back down on the bed. And I remember thinking, like, God damn, why did I bring up the earrings? Like, we were so close to being safe. So then uh, then the whole thing, basically the whole thing started all over again, where I had to, like, listen to her cry, like, calm her down. And then finally I'm like, um, you know, we have to wake up early to go to school. Do you mind leaving? And I walked her to the door, and uh, 
she walked out of the door. And then, like, as soon as she was out of the door, I just, like, like pushed the door as hard as I could to close it. And when I pushed it, like, like basically, like, slammed it shut, she screamed at the top of her lungs. And is there, like, a bolt or something on the door? I think I did bolt it after I slammed it shut. Uh-huh. And then I heard her screaming in the hallway, and then she ran down the hallway screaming, and then she ran back towards the door screaming. And uh, That must have been terrifying. It was so scary. And then then it got was quiet, and then I heard this loud, like, she's, like, banging on the door, like, as hard as she can, right? And then I hear a voice, and it's my dad. And my dad's like, open the door, open the door. And I realize it's not her banging on the door. So I... I open the door, and uh, my dad's standing there, and he's like, did you hear someone screaming in the hallway? So then I tell him this whole story. I'm like, there's this woman. She was in our room. I tell him all the details, and he is furious. He was so mad. Uh, And then he told us to stay there, shut the door, don't open the door. And then he went downstairs and talked to the hotel about it. Yeah, what did he learn? They tell him that... She had been outside. She was crying. They asked if she was a guest there. She said yes. Her name was Elena Baker. And so they looked up the name. Elena Baker? Elena Baker, yeah. And your name is Elna Baker? Yes. Okay. But I don't believe this part of the story. I think someone at the hotel just said this to him to okay. cover. And then they gave her a key? And then they gave her a key. Uh-huh. Yep. And uh, so the hotel offered him, you know, the whole stay for free, everything for free. And he's like, I don't care about your money. Like, I want you guys to do a formal investigation as to how this happened. Wow, that's such a white man takes charge move. Why does not white? Oh, point taken. <laughs> <laughs> that's a Hispanic man, a passionate, that's such a Hispanic passion. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, like, you just never hear, like, somebody be like, I demand a formal investigation, you know what I mean? It's like a, it's like a, he's a member of Congress or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. All right, anyway. But that's what, I mean, that's totally how my dad would like, that's my dad. Point taken. Okay. Um, and so they do a formal investigation, which they then send to my dad. And mm-hmm. Long it, after you've like gone from the hotel. Exactly. And in it, there's a picture of the woman. And then there's her history. She had been in a psychiatric hospital and escaped that night, come to the hotel. And uh, she had a long history of breaking into people's homes and, um, like, He's not certain about this part, so I don't know. He doesn't remember it. He doesn't remember, but he says that he he remembers there being, um, like, she had attacked people when she'd broken into their homes. That's what he remembers. That's what he remembers. Yeah. Yeah. That part of the story, the investigation, who the woman was, Elna only found that out a couple years ago when she asked her dad about it. At the time, back when she was 14... Her parents kept all that from her and her brother and sisters. They didn't want them to dwell on it or make them afraid of the world. They didn't want that evening to become a bigger deal than it already was. And Anna says today, that worked. And it's funny, I've, even as I've like told this story over the years, people are like, oh, that's so traumatic or that's crazy. I don't think of it like that. How so? It just, it just was sort of like a... Because nothing bad happened... It, it it has no category for me, if that makes sense. It was it's been easier. It was easier to just think like, oh, this one this weird thing happened one night when we were in a hotel. In retrospect, would you have preferred if they had told you back when you were fourteen? 
no, I think it's good that I got to live in a world that I think is safe. On the other hand, she says, if they had made clear how much danger she was in, the family's memory of it and her memory of it wouldn't be of this weird event with no category, this random thing that happened one night. Instead, it would fit squarely into the category called victory, a solid win for a 14-year-old girl and a big religious family when she got that stranger out of their hotel room without anybody getting hurt. And Anna says she would have liked that win. When you're trapped inside a room with an unpredictable person, really all you got is your wits and your ability to read the situation and your judgment to guessing what'll work. Nice to show everybody that even a kid can make the right call sometimes. If they pay attention closely enough. Act two, you can't go your own way. There's this piece of writing that for months we've been trying to figure out how to get onto the radio, trying to figure out a theme where we could conceivably run it. And it's about somebody stuck in a bad relationship, in this case, an abusive relationship. And it tries to capture what that feels like, in particular, all the mental energy that somebody in that situation can put into trying to figure out exactly what they should do to avoid setting off their partner. In her memoir, In the Dream House, Carmen Maria Machado invented this totally ingenious way to get that feeling across. There's this chapter that's a choose-your-own-adventure, where she imagines different choices that she could have made. A heads up uh, that this excerpt includes a scene with sexual content. It's read for us by actor Zoe Winters. Page one. You wake up and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to wake you up next time your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. If you tell her to calm down, go to page five. I choose page two. Page two. I'm so sorry, you tell her. I really didn't mean to. I just move my arms around a lot in my sleep. You try to be light about it. Did you know my dad does the same thing? The sleeping damsel swoon. So weird. I must have, are you really sorry? She says, I don't think you are. I am, you say. You want the first impression of the morning to return to you. It's freshness, it's light. I really am. Prove it. How? Stop doing it. I told you, I can't. you, she says, and gets out of bed. You follow her all the way to the kitchen. Go to page seven. Page seven. Breakfast. You scramble some eggs, make some toast. She eats mechanically and leaves the plate on the table. Clean that up, she says, as she goes to the bedroom to get dressed. If you stare mutely at the dirty plate, and all you can think about is Clara Barton, the feminist icon of your youth who had to teach herself how to be a nurse and endured abuse from men telling her what to do at every turn, 
and you remember being so angry and running to your parents and asking them if women still got told what was right or proper, and your mom said yes, and your dad said no, and you, for the first time, had an inkling of how complicated and terrible the world was, go to page 10. If you do as you are told, go to page 8. If you tell her to do it herself, go to page 5. Page 5. Are you kidding? You'd never do this. Don't try to convince any of these people that you'd stand up for yourself for one second. Get out of here. Go to the next chapter. You're out. Wait, no. Let's try that again. I go to page eight. Page eight. As you're washing the dishes, you think to yourself, maybe I should put a tack on my forehead. Maybe I should be a better person. Go to page one. Page one. You wake up and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You are moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to calm down, go to page five. If you tell her to wake you up next time your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. I go to page three. Page three. Baby, if this ever happens in the future, you can always wake me up and I'll go to the couch. I promise. I really don't mean to do it. I don't have any memory of it. I can't control how I move in my sleep. You are such a f***ing she says. You never take responsibility for anything. Well, all you have to do is wake me up, you say, a kind of incoherent desperation zipping through your skull. That's it. Wake me up and tell me to move or sleep on the couch and I will do it. I swear to you. you, she says and gets out of bed. You follow her to the kitchen. Go to page seven. Page seven. Breakfast. You scramble some eggs, make some toast. She eats mechanically and leaves the plate on the table. Clean that up she says as she goes to the bedroom to get dressed. If you do as you are told, go to page eight. If you tell her to do it herself, go to page five. If you stare mutely at the dirty plate and all you can think about is Clara Barton, the feminist icon of your youth who had to teach herself how to be a nurse and endured abuse from men telling her what to do at every turn and you remember being so angry and running to your parents and asking them if women still got told what was right or proper and your mom said yes and your dad said no and you, for the first time, had an inkling of how complicated and terrible the world was. Go to page 10. Page 10. That night, she you as you lie there mutely, praying for it to be over, praying she won't notice you're gone. You have abandoned your body so many times by now that it is force of habit reflexive as a sigh. It reminds you of your first boyfriend, who f***ed you while watching porn. How he moved over you, how every so often he lifted the remote to rewind something you couldn't see. Once, you turned your head over the lip of the bed and saw a tangle of upside-down limbs, and your brain couldn't make sense of them. You never looked again. You would just lie there silently, watching his face. It was like being unfolded beneath the yawn of the planetarium as a kid, 
the sped-up rotation of the Earth, the movement of the stars, the constellations melting into and out of being. You shudder and moan with precision. She turns off the lights. You watch the darkness until the darkness leaves you, or you leave it. To sleep, go to page 14. To dream about the present, go to page 13. To dream about the future, go to page 12. To dream about the past, go to page 11. I want to dream about the past. I choose page 11. Page 11. The first time it happened. The first time she yelled at you so much you were crying within 30 seconds from waking. A record. She said, the first 10 minutes of the day, I'm not responsible for anything I say. This struck you as poetic. You even wrote it down. Sure, you would find a place for it. In a book, maybe. Go to page 14. Page 9. You shouldn't be on this page. There's no way to get here from the choices given to you. Do you think that by flipping through this chapter linearly, you'd find some kind of relief? Don't you get it? All of this already happened, and you can't make it not happen, no matter what you do. Do you want a picture of a fawn? Will that help? Okay, here's a fawn. She is small and dappled and loose-legged. She hears a sound, freezes, and then bolts. She knows what to do. She knows there's somewhere safer she can be. Go to page 10. I don't want to go to page 10. Page 6. You shouldn't be on this page. There's no way to get here from the choices given to you. You flipped here because you got sick of the cycle. You wanted to get out. You're smarter than me. Go to page 10. Fine. I go to page 10. Page 10. That night she you as you lie there mutely, praying for it to be over. Praying she won't notice you're gone. You have abandoned your body so many times by now that it is force of habit, reflexive as a sigh. It reminds you of the rotation of the earth, the movement of the stars, the constellations melting into and out of being. You shudder and moan with precision. She turns off the lights. You watch the darkness until the darkness leaves you, or you leave it. To sleep, go to page 14. To dream about the past, go to page 11. To dream about the present, go to page 13. Page 13. You shouldn't be here, but it's okay. It's a dream. She can't find you here. In a minute, you're going to wake up and everything is going to seem like it's the same, but it's not. There's a way out. Are you listening to me? You can't forget when you wake up. You can't go to page 14. I want to dream about the future. I go to page 12. Page 12. It's going to be all right. One day, your wife will gently adjust your arm if it touches her face at night. 
soothingly straightening it while kissing you. Sometimes you will wake up just enough to notice. Other times she'll only tell you in the morning. It's the kind of morning you could get used to. Go to page 14. Page 14. You wake up and the air is milky and bright. The room glows with a kind of effervescent contentment, despite the boxes and clothes and dishes. You think to yourself, this is the kind of morning you could get used to. When you turn over, she is staring at you. The luminous innocence of the light curdles in your stomach. You don't remember ever going from awake to afraid so quickly. You were moving all night, she says. Your arms and elbows touched me. You kept me awake. If you apologize profusely, go to page two. If you tell her to wake you up next time, your elbows touch her in your sleep, go to page three. If you toss back the blankets from your body and hit the floor with both feet and tear through the house like it's Pamplona, and when you get to the driveway, your car keys are already in your hand and you drive away with a theatrical squeal of the tires never to return again, go to page 15. Page 15. That's not how it happened, but okay. We can pretend. I'll give it to you. Just this once. Turn to page 16. Page 16. An end. In the pit of it, you fantasize about dying, tripping on a sidewalk and stumbling into the path of an oncoming car, a gas leak silently offing you in your sleep, a machete-wielding madman on public transit, falling down the stairs, but drunk, so you flop limb over limb like a marionette and feel no pain. Anything to make it stop. You have forgotten that leaving is an option. Zoe Winters, reading a chapter from Carmen Maria Machado's memoir, In the Dream House. I wish I knew how it would feel to be free. I wish I could break all the chains holding me I wish I could say all the things that I should say say I'm loud say I'm clear for the whole round world to hear coming up family in quarantine thinks it's figured everything out doing everything perfectly until evidence of one tiny tiny mistake that's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. American Life from Ira Glass. Today's show, stuck for these long lockdown days and weeks and months, 
Stories of people trapped in one situation or another for long stretches, stuck. I say this, recording these words in a closet at home. Here I'm going to tap. That's the sound of me tapping hangers and a shirt. So um, this writer named Damon Linker wrote this column for the magazine and website The Week about how, right now, with schools and jobs shut down, we've all become unmoored from the future. We're stuck in the present. And it's unclear when we're going to move forward to, you know, graduation or a new job or whatever else we're building for ourselves and our lives in a normal time we will be looking forward to. And he tries to make the case that this is a big, big deal. Human beings live their lives in time, he writes. Our sense of ourselves is partly who we're trying to become. Quote, a life without forward momentum is to a considerable extent a life without purpose, or at least the kind of purpose that lifts our spirits and livens our steps. Without the momentum and purpose, we flounder. A present without a future is a life that feels less worth living because it's a life haunted by a shadow of futility, end quote. I have to say, I've thought about that so much these last few weeks because so many people that I'm close to, I just see how they are stressed out by how weirdly formless their days have become. The normal routine is all gone. And all of us have only the cloudiest sense of what the future is going to be. Act three of our program today is about a family that is in that limbo, hunkered down, trying to get by. When you're stuck indoors for long stretches of time, weird things can happen. So uh, let's get to this. Uh, this is act three, cold case. So you know um, those locked room detective stories where there's a crime in some room and it's unclear how the culprit even got into the room? This next story is uh, kind of about that sort of situation. One of our producers, Nadia Raymond, explains. This thing happened recently that made no sense to me at all. My family's been isolating in suburban Rochester, New York, where my parents live. And I mean hardcore isolating. We see no one, we go nowhere, we haven't been inside a store or been around other humans in two months. For food, we do curbside pickup or delivery, which, privilege, I know. Then we do this insane disinfection process where we wipe everything down with a 90% rubbing alcohol, 10% water solution we made ourselves. When we're done, the room smells like a sterilized doctor's office. When we go for walks, if we see anyone, we cross the street a block ahead. We pick up all mail with disposable gloves, leave it in the garage for 24 hours. We used to spray it with Lysol first. We agreed that was overkill. But to be honest, I still do it behind my family's back. So in my mind, there is no way any germ could break through our impenetrable disinfectant fortress. But somehow, after doing this day after day for seven straight weeks... Yeah, I woke up fairly early in the morning and felt it. I think I have a cold. That's my husband, Jeremy. I was run down, uh, runny nose, uh, sore throat. In a couple of days, he was fine. But I was like, how the hell did that even happen? How could he possibly have gotten a cold? We've been super careful because he has an immune deficiency, one that affects his respiratory system. It keeps me up at night sometimes. Because if the cold virus made it into our house, then the coronavirus could too. It meant there was a crack in our armor. I needed to know where we had failed. So Jeremy and I consulted an expert at a very safe social distance. Where are you? I'm in Cardiff, Wales, United Kingdom, uh, and I'm on the coast here, so I'm looking out over the sea. So I'm really well isolated. 
This is Ron Eccles, who really knows about colds. Studied them for 50 years. He ran a place called the Common Cold Center at Cardiff University. Almost immediately, I told him all the precautions we were taking. I don't understand how this is like physically possible. I'm just really want to know like how did this how did this happen? Yeah. Like how could he have gotten this? Well, it, it's a bit of a mystery. Let me see if I can ask you some questions to work through it rather like a detective. Uh, you say you've not actually met anybody, so I assume you've not physically touched anybody, shaken hands or any, anything like that. No, not at all. Uh, what about the door handle outside? Has anybody else touched that door handle for, perhaps to open it a cleaner or a delivery man? Well, so here's what I've done. Um, every time we go out the house, I started to spray the door handle with Lysol. And um, and now I made the paint come off. So there's like a big streak going down the middle of it because I've sprayed it so much. I can personally guarantee that doorknob is safe. Uh, the next way you could pick up a cold from someone is by what we call an aerosol. And these are just tiny particles. Um, I, is there any way that someone could have been outside and coughing and sneezing and maybe small particles have come in? Is that a possibility? That seemed like the only possible way because yeah. we will see people jogging, walking towards us and we'll cross the street. And so if there's any potential for them to have sneezed or coughed in the trail... Yeah, that's um, a possibility if you yeah. caught downwind from them. I mean, sure, but pretty damn unlikely. Eccles moves on to a different line of questioning. I'm, I'm homing in now on two possibilities for Jeremy. Did Jeremy experience any itching at all with this uh, episode that he had? Itching in the throat or no? Because if you had any itching, I would tend to think that it could be some sort of allergy. No, no, not that I can recall. And he's been tested twice. No allergies. Which leaves one last possibility. One I didn't even imagine, like not in my wildest dreams. The thing that made him sick, it was inside him all along. We are carrying a lot of bacteria around in our throat and knows normally. Now, if we get stressed, and you did mention that Jeremy did have a bit of a slight immune deficiency, but stress causes us to get even more immune deficient, then it's possible that some of the bacteria that are normally hanging around in the throat or nose of Jeremy have taken that opportunity of low immunity to make a bit of an infection. So I think I'm including that it's probably a bacterial infection because I can't see how on earth you would have got a cold with all the precautions that you're taking. So he had a cold in, like inside of him already? Not a virus, but a bacterium. But it's masquerading as a common cold. That's his best guess. Basically, the call was coming from inside the house. How long would Jeremy have been like, how long would it have been just hanging out there with him? Could it be like months? Could it be something that he had since like before we, before the seven weeks that we've been up here? Oh, yes. It could be years. Really? Years. It felt good. It meant there was no hole in the armor. All the wiping, the spraying, it was working. Everything was fine. 
Jeremy also felt good? Kinda. I think in some ways I might feel less relieved now because now it feels like it just lives in me and that it's just, it's just, it's just always there waiting to try to Don't kill worry, me. Jeremy. We all are. We all have the same bacteria. <laughs> uh, but it's coming after me. <laughs> I have a small confession to make. When Jeremy first told me he felt sick, Honestly, I didn't really believe him. I love him, but I thought he was just tired. Turns out he was right. He was sick. It was real. So here you go. Jeremy, you were right. Sorry, love. Nadia Raymond is one of the producers of our show. Act four, unhappy accident. So we end our show today with a story from our archive of somebody stuck in a momentary difficult situation. It comes from Edgar Carrot. The story is all true. It happens in Israel, where Edgar lives, and was read for us in English translation by actor Michael Chernus. 30 years, I'm a cabbie, the small guy sitting behind the wheel tells me. 30 years and not one accident. It's been almost an hour since I got into his taxi in Beersheba, and he hasn't stopped talking for a second. Under different circumstances, I would tell him to shut up, but I don't have the energy for that today. Under different circumstances, I wouldn't shell out 350 shekels to take a taxi to Tel Aviv. I would take the train. But today, I feel that I have to get home as early as I can. I spent last night at Iki Love Hospital with my wife. She had a miscarriage and was bleeding heavily. We thought it would be okay till she passed out. It wasn't until we got to the emergency room that they told us that her life was in danger and gave her a blood transfusion. Three days before that, my dad's doctors told me and my parents that the cancer at the base of his tongue, which had been in remission for four years, was back, and the tumor was at such an advanced stage that the only way to fight it was to remove his tongue and larynx. The oncologist said she didn't recommend having the surgery, but my dad said that he was for it. The oncologist told him that the operation would leave him seriously handicapped, unable to speak or eat. At my age, my dad said, all I need are my heart and my eyes so I can enjoy watching my grandchildren grow. When we left the room, the doctor whispered to me, try to talk to him. She clearly doesn't know my dad. The taxi driver repeats for the hundredth time that in 30 years he hasn't had a single accident and that, all of a sudden, five days ago, his car kissed the bumper of the car in front of him, traveling at 20 kilometers per hour. When they stopped and checked, he saw that, except for a scratch on the left side of the bumper, the other car hadn't really been damaged at all. He offered the other driver 200 shekels on the spot, but the driver insisted that they exchange insurance information. The next day, the driver, a Russian, asked him to come to a garage, and he and the owner probably a friend of his, showed him a huge dent all the way on the other side of the car and said the damage was 2,000 shekels. The cab driver refused to pay, and now the other guy's insurance company was suing him. Don't worry. It'll be okay, I tell him, in the hope that my words will make him stop talking for a minute. How will it be okay, he complains. They're going to screw me. Those bastards are going to squeeze the money out of me. You see how unfair it is? Five days I haven't slept. Do you get what I'm saying? 
Stop thinking about it, I suggest. Try thinking about other things in your life, happy things. I can't, the cab driver groans and grimaces. I, I just can't. Then stop talking to me about it, I say. Keep on thinking and, and suffering, but just don't tell me about it anymore, okay? It's not the money, the taxi driver continues. Believe me, yesterday, I went with my son to the graves of the Sadiqim. We bought blessings for 1,800 shekels, and I didn't mind paying. It's the injustice that gets me. Shut up, I say, finally losing it. Just shut up for a minute. What are you yelling for, the cab driver asks, insulted. I'm an old man. It's not nice. I'm yelling because my father is going to die if they don't cut his tongue out of his mouth. I continue to yell. I'm yelling because my wife is in the hospital after a miscarriage. The driver is silent for the first time since I got into his taxi, and now I'm suddenly the one who can't stop the stream of words. Let's make a deal, I say. Get me to an ATM, and I'll take out 2,000 shekels and give it to you. In exchange, it'll be your father who has to have his tongue removed and your wife who's lying in a hospital bed getting a blood transfusion after a miscarriage. The driver is still silent, and now so am I. I feel a little uncomfortable for having shouted at him, but not uncomfortable enough to apologize. To avoid his eyes, I look out the window. We miss the exit to Tel Aviv. I tell him that politely, or I shout it angrily, I don't recall anymore. He tells me not to worry. He doesn't really know the way, but in a minute, he'll find out. A few seconds later, he parks in the right lane of the highway after managing to convince another driver to stop. He starts to get out of the taxi to ask for directions to Tel Aviv. You'll kill us both, I tell him. You can't stop here. 30 years, I'm a cabbie, he tosses back at me as he gets out of the taxi. 30 years and not one accident. Alone in the cab, I can feel the tears rising. I don't want to cry. I don't want to feel sorry for myself. I want to be positive like my dad. My wife is fine now, and we already have a wonderful son. My dad survived the Holocaust. That's not just a half-full glass, it's an overflowing one. I don't want to cry. Not in this taxi. Not next to this driver that I yelled at. The tears are welling up and will soon begin to flow. Suddenly I hear a crashing boom and the sound of windows breaking. The world around me shatters. A silver car veers across the next lane, completely smashed. The taxi moves too, but not on the ground. It floats above it, towards the concrete wall on the side of the road. After it hits, there's another bang. Another car must have hit the taxi. A second before the ambulance drives away, they load the taxi driver into it. Deep in my heart, I was hoping they'd send us in separate ambulances, but it just wasn't my day. The driver, looking revitalized and happy, lights a cigarette. The paramedic wears a yarmulke and tells me I was very lucky. An accident like that with no deaths is a miracle. The minute you're discharged from the hospital, he says, you should run to the nearest synagogue and give thanks for still being alive. My cell phone rings, it's my dad. He's only calling to ask how my day at the university was and whether the little one is asleep yet. I tell him that the little one is sleeping and my day at the university was great. And Shira, my wife, is fine too. She just stepped into the shower. What's that noise, he asks. An ambulance siren, I tell him. I try to sound casual. One just passed by in the street. 
Once, five years ago, when I was in Sicily with my wife and son, I called my dad to ask how he was. He said everything was fine. In the background, a voice on a loudspeaker was calling on Dr. Schulman to the operating room. Where are you? I asked. In the supermarket, my dad said without a moment's hesitation. They're announcing on the loudspeaker that someone lost her purse. He sounded so convincing when he said that, so confident and happy. Why are you crying? My dad asks now from the other side of the line. I force myself to smile, hoping he can sense it too. It's nothing, I say as the ambulance stops next to the emergency ward and the paramedic slams the ambulance doors open. Really, it's nothing. Michael Chernis, reading a story by Edgar Carrot. Eckhart's most recent collection of stories is called Fly Already. Rogan was produced today by one of our managing editors, Sada Abdurrahman, and Aviva de Kornfeld. People who put our show together today includes Bim Adewumi, Elna Baker, Emmanuel Berry, Susan Burton, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Nor Gill, Damian Grave, Lena Mitsitsi, Stone Nelson, Catherine Raimondo, Nadia Raymond, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, Lily Sullivan, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Julie Whitaker. Our other managing editor is Diane Wu. Our executive editor is David Kestenbaum. Special thanks today to Harrison Nesbitt, Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi, and Eileen Berry. I first read about Damon Linker's column in The Week by reading Andrew Sullivan's column in New York Magazine. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Support for This American Life comes from Constant Contact, providing small businesses with tools to sell online and stay in touch with customers. Information about their new small business support kit with guidance and action plans is at constantcontact.com. And from Progressive Insurance, with the Name Your Price tool, offering a range of coverage and price options to choose from, more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Now that's Progressive. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, before he began his distinguished career in public broadcasting, Tori worked on an ice cream truck. But I don't know, man. There were certain basics of the job I think he never got used to. Every single stop, he would greet the customers crowding around the window exactly the same way. You're just children. I didn't expect you to be children. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. I'm stuck with you.